This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Well, welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This is a special episode today that we are recording uh, on the day that uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has really um, come to pass, uh, something that we long expected but hoped would not occur. And we felt we had to record another episode this week. We normally only record one a week, but we felt we had to record another one to document this moment and to provide us all a space to reflect and think about what we're experiencing today. Many of us have been following Russian foreign policy, European politics, and modern world history for uh, a long time. And uh, any account of democracy in the modern world is really built around these regions as important areas. And uh, the events of the last uh, 24 hours have been disconcerting, to say the least. So our podcast today is really trying to explore, understand, and, and come to grips with what's occurring before us, uh, the kind of warfare we thought was long in the past, but clearly isn't. Uh, we're joined by our longtime friend and uh, General Mensch, uh, <laughs> Dr. Michael Kimmage. Uh, Michael, as many of you know, is a distinguished scholar of uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, foreign policy, and American politics. Uh, he wrote a phenomenal book on um, the importance of the West and the, the rise and fall of ideas about the West in our society. And he's written wonderful books on American conservatism and literature and society. He also served on the policy planning staff uh, in the State Department and is very involved with the German Marshall Fund uh, and various other groups uh, looking at and understanding foreign policy in our world today. And he's been on our podcast many times to talk about Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Michael, thanks for agreeing to join us on what's a super busy and difficult day for you. It's such a pleasure to be with you both. No better place to be. And uh, to get us started, as always, we have uh, Mr. Zachary's uh, scene-setting poem. Uh, what's the title of your poem, Zachary? Well, today's poem is titled In Kiev, but it's uh, only one-third of a larger poem called Our Ukrainian Love Story. So, and, and this is a poem you had written about a week ago, right? Yes, yes. You wrote it for uh, a different context, right? Right, right. For, for, for the time before the war. Right. Okay. Well, let's hear it. In my mind, we would have met in Kiev along the Dnieper, and we would have walked the beaches. Yes, I know it is winter, and it is all probably frozen over, or at least colder than ice, but I still think I could fall in love with you there. In my mind, we would have stood under the statues and cathedrals and monasteries and laughed because it had all turned to dust before. Yes, it will be dust again, and probably, if not yesterday, tomorrow. If not tomorrow, then an hour from now. But I still think I could fall in love with you there. We'd find a park in an old neighborhood and sit, maybe even as the guns were rolling in. In my mind, we would have met in Kiev, and you would have looked me in the eyes without flinching, and I would return the favor. Yes, what can it possibly be worth, this falling in love in a park? But I would like our love story to end a true tragedy, not just a war poem. 
In my mind, we would have met in Kiev along the Dnieper, you and I walking between real people, holding onto reality and realness and realistic, reifying, repetitious indecency. Yes, wouldn't you say it's indecent to fall in love before the war, before anyone can twist it and make it seem trite or stupendous or patriotic? Wouldn't you say it's indecent? In my mind, we would have met in Kiev in a cafe, and we would have sipped our coffee. What else are we supposed to do? In my mind, we would have hugged a tree stump or bumped into a great oak, and no one would kill us for having disrespected the trees. It seems so much more beautiful that way. In my mind, we would have met in Kiev in a cafe just before all this, maybe yesterday, and maybe inadvertently we could fold a thousand paper cranes. I love the closing on the paper crane, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, understanding the extent to which people's lives go on as normal before, after, and during war, and the way that these universal themes of love and and violence are 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 just heightened during war. They they're not suppressed. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Michael, I I think this poem is is in your wheelhouse. You 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 bring such a literary sensibility to your policy and scholarly work. I'm I'm curious your reflections on on the on the last day and and the war in in Ukraine. Well, I think Zachary has captured something significant about many wars. Certainly, the the Second World War is this way, but very much the case with this war, which is its its suddenness. Of course, we've all been reading the news for the last year, and we know that war has been possible, and there's been war in, in Ukraine for the last eight years. That's a reality for sure. Um, and it's not to trivialize that, but uh, this mass invasion of a kind that has disrupted civilian life uh, uh, in a country of some 40 million people, the rapidity of it, uh, the way in which the bombs began early in the morning, uh, and with with their, you know, with the ruthlessness of that transformed everything, I think Zachary is exactly right. There's the overlay of normal life, of love and cafe and parks, uh, and the conventional life of a conventional and beautiful city. Uh, and then there's the horrific interjection uh, and disruption uh, of war, and the two things coincide and coexist. Uh, and I agree with Zachary entirely. That's the tragedy of war, because you don't cease to be human in the midst of war, you're almost excessively human, uh, and the poem captures that beautifully. Michael, how should we think about uh, what's happening in, in in Ukraine, not just in Kyiv and other areas? How should we understand? Uh, we can see the bombs. We can we can watch CNN, and they'll narrate for us the the military elements of warfare, and we can hear the speeches from the politicians. Um, but but how should we try to understand what's happening on the ground? I think a point that's worth bearing in mind amid this 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 blizzard of of events and 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 details to linger just for a moment with with literature one one moment longer since Zachary has so kindly brought us there there's the wonderful novel cycle of John dos Passos from the 1930s uh, called USA and one of the things he does in that book is to parse without any explanation all these different hard hitting headlines and it just seems like modernism when you read it as a college undergraduate but it's been coming to my mind today because you take all these headlines in and you can't make sense of them. They sort of overwhelm you. Uh, and Dos Passos captures that really well. And I think for all of us, it's hard not to have that feeling uh, at the moment. So I think if we were to pull back and try as best we can to get something of a big picture view of this event, uh, and it's only the first day, alas, but uh, the point I would underscore is the radicalism 
uh, of Putin's methods here. Um, a lot of people, myself included, have been speculating for the last couple of months about what might happen. We knew that he assembled some 200,000 soldiers with an enormous amount of, of firepower. We know that there are military assets that Russia has in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine or the Donbass. This is not in and of itself a surprise, and you could play out various scenarios that maybe there would be enhanced fighting on the line of contact in eastern Ukraine. Maybe Russia would bite off yet another piece of the country uh, and seek to destabilize or seek to, to get the West or Ukraine back to the diplomatic table. All of that was was speculated about, but that wasn't the approach that, that Putin took. He's, uh, you know, taken into his sights one of Europe's, Europe's largest countries territorially, uh, with tens of millions of people in its population. And not only has he attacked from the east, the north, uh, and the south, but he's also, uh, his armies have engaged in bombing in cities as far west as, as Lviv and Ivano-Frankivsk, which is, I think, what very few people in Ukraine and elsewhere expected from this, uh, from this endeavor. So it's a massive military campaign, and I think we can extrapolate from that that this will be for Russia, whatever this means, and however successful or unsuccessful they're going to be, this is going to be a massive political project as well. Uh, so this is not a reshuffling of the deck of the diplomatic cards uh, in some place like Geneva or Vienna, where you can come back with some kind of face-saving victory uh, or a, a newly designated treaty of some kind. This is a massive effort to reorder in military and eventually in political terms. And that takes my breath away. And how should we understand the human cost on the ground? Will will Do you think we'll see a major refugee crisis? Are we seeing that at the moment? I think we can still entertain two scenarios at the moment, despite what I just said a moment ago about the the radicalism of the uh, of the operation. I think it is possible that in the next week or two, uh, Putin could enable a, a ceasefire of sorts or a pause, uh, and he could use the leverage that he's gained on the battlefield to try to impose terms on on the existing um, on the existing Ukrainian government. Um, in other words, keep Zelensky there, keep the government intact, don't have to deal with an occupation, uh, and therefore with an insurgency, but try to get what Russia wants, neutrality, some degree of control over the country, uh, by threatening further military force. In that case, thinking very optimistically, there will be immense humanitarian costs of the operation, uh, but they won't be uh, on the largest possible scale. If Putin, on the other hand, goes for something like partition of the country or what may be conceivable given some of the military moves, an outright effort to conquer Ukraine, to install a puppet, and really to control the country from Moscow in the way that Russia controls Belarus, then I can't imagine the humanitarian cost being other than anything other than, than, than entirely catastrophic, because you'll have two kinds of humanitarian costs. You'll have all the people who are driven out by the war itself, but then you're going to have an incredible resistance in Ukraine to this kind of Russian control, this Russian stage-managed political process. This is, at the moment, a free society. It has political parties, it has institutions, it has civil society. You don't terminate that overnight. And people are not going to give up those qualities or those rights uh, overnight either. The only way you can do it is through uh, uh, an architecture of repression uh, that in and of itself will have enormous humanitarian consequences. This is somewhat similar to the Stalinist tactics that were employed between 1945 and 1948 in places like Czechoslovakia, Hungary, uh, and Poland and the Baltic Republics. They didn't want to be part of a Soviet imperium, but coercion made them a part of the Soviet imperium, once again, at terrible humanitarian cost. 
Right. And, and most scholars, yourself included, would put the numbers at above 20 million casualties during that period, during the 1930s and 40s. Uh, why, Michael, does Russia have this obsession with Ukraine? Why does Putin have this obsession? He, he makes a very transparently superficial and unpersuasive argument about this being the heart of Russia. There's, there's got to be something deeper. Uh, why do you think this obsession exists? Okay, let me review as best as I can. We all believe, I think, in the idea of strategic empathy, that we try to understand uh, adversaries and even enemies sort of in their own terms. So I'll engage in that in the spirit of neutrality, uh, and we'll try to explain Putin's view as best as I understand it uh, in, in a way that makes sense uh, to him, uh, if not to us. Uh, and we'll explain two dimensions of his approach to, to Ukraine, one of which is cultural or civilizational, uh, and the other uh, of which is geostrategic or, or, or geopolitical, and they intersect. I think it's clear and it's implicit to your question, Jeremy, that the geostrategic is more important than the, the cultural civilizational. But, you know, when we, one listens to his speeches, you see how often he argues in cultural and civilizational terms. So here I think we're sort of familiar from all of the speeches he's given recently, that there's a religious bond between the two countries, that there's a way in which Russia sort of drew life, Muscovy drew life from uh, from Kiev and Rus, from medieval Ukraine, uh, and that these two peoples sort of emerged in tandem with one another, Ukrainian and Russian, with shared linguistic affinities, cultural affinities, um, cuisine, folkways, music, uh, etc. In, 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 in Vladimir Putin's parlance, you know, sort of one people. And you want to understand here, there's something very particular to the Putin's argument here, but it's also a broader Russian argument about Ukraine's bond with Russia. The premise here, highly politicized, of course, is that the West has consistently used a Western Ukrainian nationalism uh, as a lever of influence to break up this bond, to separate Russians and Ukrainians, to put them at odds with each other, and thereby to weaken Russia. The Poles have done this, and the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire did this, and Nazi Germany did this, and then the United States has done this more, uh, more recently. So it's not just a romantic cultural civilizational argument, it's an argument of grievance. Uh, and when you hear of Putin speaking of liberating Ukraine at the present moment, fantastic as that sounds to his ears, it sort of follows from that. The West and uh, a nationalist elite has superimposed something artificial and repellent, um, Nazi in orientation, according to Putin, uh, onto Ukraine. And Russia will now eliminate that and sort of allow Ukraine to be, uh, to be Ukraine. He, even uses the of, he even uses the phrase denazify, which is striking to me. The phrase denazify, which, uh, as everybody points out, for a country with a Jewish Jewish heritage president uh, is, is, is baffling, but uh, it's of a piece with this. It's, it's really about outside influence. That's in part what he means. It's the most extreme form of it, the ugliest form of it, the Nazi, uh, Nazi form, and you're sort of allowing what's indigenous to be uh, indigenous. I think he'll encounter a lot of difficulty with this project on the ground when the fighting is over. Uh, and he, if he does pursue a political project there, I think he'll find it's much more difficult to enact than this theory uh, of the case uh, would suggest. But that's, you know, time will tell on that, on that, on that account. The geostrategic argument is, um, uh, is, is, of course, very significant. And part of it is not madness on Putin's part. This is a neighboring country. There's a very large border between Ukraine and Russia. Historically, there's been a big commercial connection uh, between the two countries. Russia has naval assets in the Black Sea that are affected by uh, the position of Ukraine. Historically, if you want to go down this road, invasions of, of Russia have come through 
uh, Ukraine, it's not entirely wrong to think of both the first and the second world wars as Ukraine wars uh, in a certain sense. And so uh, it, it is clear that Ukraine occupies an important strategic position uh, for Russia. But what Putin has taken from that, what he spun from that simple circumstance, uh, is a twofold approach to this crisis, which he himself has generated, which is that he is going to use military force for one of two possible aims. Uh, the first is to block certain outcomes. And primarily that would be the military affiliation between Ukraine and the United States or between Ukraine and NATO, between Ukraine uh, and Europe. This is empirically a relationship, a military relationship that has been growing in the last couple of years between Ukraine and the West, and Putin finds it entirely unacceptable uh, and has not been unclear about his willingness to use military force uh, to terminate that, to, to, to put an end to that relationship. That's, I think, his minimal aim in Ukraine, and I suspect that that is achievable for him through, uh, through military force one way or another. His other aspiration uh, is political in nature. He wants to create a compliant Ukraine that's at the very least deferential to Russia, but better than that, and this plays back into his cultural reading of the country, that's loyal to Russia. And he will attempt, I think, to use military force to create this kind of Ukraine, either through a puppet uh, or through some other kind of government structure that's put in place. Uh, and that's, of course, vastly more ambitious. And I suspect his chances of succeeding at that second project, that sort of second political project, uh, are pretty close to zero. And he's already tried a few times by trying to install various figures, uh, which actually was one of the motivations for the color revolutions, which in some ways has brought him to this to this moment. Michael, that, that was a super helpful historical dissection of this uh, topic of the, the crisis, and, and it showed why understanding the history of societies is so important when you're trying to explain the current moment. Do Russians, uh, Russian citizens, the ordinary Ivan and Anya, as as Ronald Reagan would refer to them, do do they um, do they buy into this as well? And and does it even matter? Well, I think it does matter. Uh, in some respects, this is I find in the current crisis one of the essential questions: uh, where is where is Russian public opinion going to fall? What does all this mean for domestic domestic Russian politics? And I will say here uh, that my own level of knowledge here is very, very thin. So I'm just guessing. I haven't been to Russia since 2016. Uh, it's an enormous country. It has all of these different social uh, segments, and I simply can't predict uh, how they're going to respond uh, to this massive uh, massive war. And so I'll offer two points that contradict each other in terms of what Russian public opinion may do in light of this cataclysmic event. One uh, is that there will be a rally around the flag effect. Uh, that lots of Russians, and sometimes it's not as grandiose as Putin makes it out to be, lots of Russians have family members in Ukraine. So when you hear this phrase, one people, we might think that that's a pretext for imperialism, and it may well be for Putin, but a lot of Russians hear that and they say, yes, my you know, grandfather or grandmother is from Ukraine, so we are, in a sense, uh, of the same family. And then a lot of Russians travel and vacation in Ukraine. Uh, that's going back to Soviet times, and there's a kind of sentimentality that it's, it's you know, sort of... Uh, um, I don't know, in the way that Americans might have sentimentality about Cancun. I don't know if they think that Mexico and the U.S. are the same country, but there's a kind of affinity there, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's an identification, perhaps, with the, uh, with the place or the, uh, or the location. So it can be sentimental and nostalgic and not necessarily uh, political or geopolitical. But there is, I think, a popular presumption in Russia that Ukraine uh, is very much a part of our world. And perhaps we as Russians are very much a part of uh, of its world, and Putin plays on that. But beyond that, in terms of the popularity of this war, such as it is, and if you look at the Levada polling, 
over the last week. Um, you know, it doesn't look like it's immediately uh, unpopular in Russia. I, I think that there is a sense that Russian autonomy, Russian assertiveness, Russia creating facts on the ground, standing up to the West, securing its borders, uh, exerting influence, all of this is, is positive in nature. So we look at the war and we see the horror of it. I think it's possible from a Russian point of view to look at the war and see, um, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but to see the purpose of it, uh, perhaps, uh, and to see the Russian initiative behind it and to perceive that initiative uh, in positive and constructive terms. Again, very difficult for us to get to that narrative through our news media and through our point of view, but uh, I, I think it's there. And for a while, I suspect the war will be popular. When Russian soldiers start to die, you know, what did um, uh, Elliot Cohen write today on Twitter, the great uh, uh, foreign affairs scholar, former dean of Johns Hopkins Sice, that the, the, what we really need to do to deal with Russia and Ukraine is body bags. Uh, I'm not sure. I think that when Russians see soldiers dying there, they're going to look at that with regret. But there's a natural instinctive wartime reaction that you're killing our guys and uh, we're going to be invested in the war for that reason. So it will be up to a point a popular war with many elements, especially of Putin's uh, constituency. That said, we saw protests today in some 50, over 50 Russian cities. Uh, I think Putin's messaging to the Russian population has been bizarre. I think he seems not to care about younger Russians. He's making all of these Soviet, neo-Soviet, neo-imperial Russian arguments uh, that may appeal to pensioners and people of an older generation. I just wonder how that works uh, for younger people. Uh, and I think when Russians see the humanitarian crisis, and this is not the Soviet Union anymore, you're not going to be able to block those images entirely. They will filter in uh, to the Russian consciousness when they see those humanitarian disasters that Russia is going to create in the course of this war, they will say, that's my grandmother's town, or that's a place that right. I'm familiar with. These are people that I know. They're, they're like me. It's the same religion. It's the same language, more or less. Um, uh, and that will be very, very damaging uh, for Putin. Wars of choice, as we all know, right, Jeremy? Wars of choice are especially perilous uh, for governments. And when those wars of choice go badly, uh, it can have a really deleterious uh, effect. One need think one need think back only to the war of 1905 between Russia and Japan, and how that is a is a, is an ingredient later of the of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. And that's especially true, of course, when the expectations are so high of an artificial quick victory without any resistance of of any kind. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. What about the uh, Ukrainian leadership? Uh, wh where do they fall in this? And, and, and how do they handle a, a situation like this that seems almost entirely unprovoked? Uh, and, and, and how do they, how do they gain the support they need from, from the West? Zachary, I'm going to be very candid, sort of in, in the, to the best of my abilities. And what I'm going to say is going to be very depressing and will seem a little bit perhaps unfair to a government that's fighting for its life and a country that's fighting for its life. But uh, I, I think we don't benefit from, um, from sugarcoating and from uh, an evasion of the knowable uh, facts. In my view, and I feel churlish saying this at this very moment, uh, I think that the Ukrainian government over the last couple of years was unnecessarily intransigent in terms of the diplomatic process. Uh, they sort of thought that Uncle Sam was behind them, you know, they had lost the military battles in 2014, 2015. They came to the table, they signed these agreements that they didn't like, uh, and then they didn't implement them. They didn't want to see them implemented. I fully understand in human terms, and I very well understand in political terms why it was near impossible for them to do that. But in light of what's happening now on the ground, when I look back at those moments, I wonder if it wouldn't have been better to just be, dare one say it, sort of more conciliatory uh, to the country that does have a superior 
uh, military. There are lots of dangers in that approach, and you can lose that way as well. Uh, but uh, in retrospect, I think um, not every option was explored, and I have regret about that, and I have regret about how the U.S. approached and framed this issue uh, as well. But that, by now, of course, is 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 water under the bridge. Uh, Michael, before before we just move on, I, I don't want to cut you off, but I just just to explain to our listeners, you're referring to the Minsk Accords and particularly agreements that had been made or signed, at least, that would have given more autonomy. Uh, as I understand it, to uh, areas in the Donbas, uh, the eastern Ukraine, with areas that have large Russian populations. Is that, is that what you're referring to? Exactly. And the Ukrainians perceive this rightly. This is how the Russians intended it. It's the bitterness of this whole situation as a poison pill for Ukrainian politics, because this would have given eastern Ukraine under a kind of Russian control tacit or explicit vetoes over Ukrainian foreign policy. It would have been a d- diminishment of Ukrainian sovereignty. And that was the dilemma. Do you accept that? and perhaps accept future such efforts to diminish your sovereignty, uh, or do you not accept it uh, and try to you know, sort of fight your way uh, forward? They chose that route, uh, and, um, uh, and, you know, and we can study that as the knowable choice. We don't know what would have happened with these other, uh, with these other choices. A second point I'll make here in terms of Ukrainian leadership, uh, and I'll conclude with a, a few kind words about Zelensky, for whom I have at this particular moment enormous admiration, uh, they made a decision not to mobilize two months ago when the U.S. was saying this is going to happen. I've never seen, I think we've all been sort of marveling at this, I have never seen a White House using intelligence uh, in this way with this, with this degree of confidence and this degree of openness. Obviously, they would have shared a lot in private with the Ukrainian government, the White House, that they didn't share in public. Uh, and we know now, hindsight being 2020, uh, that the U.S. was right. Uh, so... It's baffling. It was baffling to me then. I have a tweet to this effect, so I can, uh, you know, sort of legitimize this, uh, this, 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 this claim. At least it's, it was baffling to me six, seven weeks ago why Zelensky didn't mobilize. Obviously, he didn't want to incite the Russians by mobilizing. He didn't want to panic his population or tank the economy. But my guess is he just got it wrong, and that's a pretty huge mistake to make when you're in a, a situation that militarily for Ukraine is in every respect a game of, a game of inches. So they are evacuating now and mobilizing uh, in a rapid fire way, but I just fear it's, 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 it's much too late. Uh, they face uh, the most tragic and, and terrible choice at the moment. They are going to lose militarily. That's not, I think, really in question. Uh, it may take three months. It may be more like the Soviet Finnish war, which was brutal and difficult and much longer than Stalin expected it to be. Uh, or it may be, and I suspect that this is probably closer to the truth as far as one can predict it, more like the Iraq War uh, of 2003 or the first Gulf War, where it just, you know, you have two militaries that are not matched, uh, and uh, one of them is sort of destined, uh, in a sense, to lose. If that's the case, then, and we know that Putin has these hit lists, or we think we know that he has these hit lists, and he's already made those statements that he's got to get the Nazis out of the Ukrainian government and he's got to purge. Uh, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian polity of these negative forces that Zelensky stands a very good chance of losing his life and not, you know, a month from now, possibly next week. You know, Kiev is already uh, semi-encircled by Russian uh, military. So do you um, go down with the ship, as, as I suspect Zelensky will, uh, and in the process encourage an insurgency that will retain uh, the country's honor uh, and try to live for a better day, uh, whenever that may be, or do you consider surrendering uh, in some way or suing for peace? And I suspect that he's just not going to do that. It doesn't seem 
in character for him. I can admire him for that, and I'm, but I'm also not sure when I think about this alternative. I just I, I don't know how to handle it. I'll, I'll 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 sort of leave it at that. But to 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 come in with a concluding word about Zelensky, this man came to the job as a former comedian, as an entertainer, a television personality. Uh, and we can laugh at that and say this is the Trump of 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 Ukraine. He's you know younger than I am. I think he's 43, 44 years old, and he often looked you know sort of uh, out of sorts. And then he got subjected to all of this weird treatment from Donald Trump, and he had to deal with that. Uh, and he's struggled with the job, and uh, he's not always been great at it. But boy, has he shown real courage in the last couple of weeks. Yep. Uh, he went to Munich. He came back. Uh, he really spoke with such dignity on the eve of the. Uh, of the invasion that I suspect what he's doing, maybe I'm reading too much into it, he knows he will die or end up in some Russian prison. He's thinking about the future Ukraine. He's thinking about the Ukraine that will be born after this war and after this occupation, which is uh, the purest form of heroism that I can that I can think of in politics. Well, and he has shown, it seems to me, Michael, and this is implied in your in your lovely comments, he has shown for all his sometime incompetence, he's shown a real commitment to something larger than himself. And it's at least reminded me in this terrible, tragic moment that as ugly as politics is, uh, there's still, there, there still is heroism. That doesn't mean you get a heroic outcome, um, but there's, there's a nobility in that. And um, maybe that is a, a tiny silver lining and, and maybe that becomes something for future Ukrainian uh, citizens to look toward. Um, I, I know you have other people you need to talk to, Michael, uh, who are eager to get your your thoughts and insights. I wanted to close by asking you yet another hard question, and I promise it'll be the last one. What should we do in the United States? And I don't, I don't just mean what should President Biden do. I think that's an important conversation, obviously. But many of our listeners, many citizens, many of your friends and my friends, Michael, uh, care deeply, even if uh, they're not experts on Ukraine. Uh, I think it's fair to say that most people uh, oppose the idea of a big country conquering a small country in this way. And um, that's the most simple way to understand what's happening here. Uh, so what, sh what should we as citizens uh, who believe in democracy, what should we do? Okay. It's a hard question. And I'm going to try to answer it in three in three uh, in three domains, the first one is is being aware of the stakes for Ukraine. Obviously, Ukraine is the victim here. It's 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 happening on their territory to their people, so they matter first and foremost. Uh, the stakes for Europe, uh, which are which are as we all know very significant, uh, and then the stakes for the United States and for American foreign policy. I'm leaving off here the stakes for Russia, which I think are very great, uh, and we'll save that Jeremy and Zachary for another conversation, how we can conceptualize Russian democracy at this moment, which doesn't really exist, but may exist, and how we can think of cultural diplomacy toward Russia uh, that may get us out of the abyss that we're entering into in terms of this endless cycle of escalatory conflict with Russia. But that's a conversation for another day, and those stakes matter a lot too, but I'll leave them out here for uh, for purposes of, of, of efficiency. We were just speaking about Zelensky and Ukraine. There's, of course, sovereignty and nationhood, which the Ukrainians deserve as much as we do and as much as anybody else uh, on this planet does. So that I think we can certainly acknowledge and respect, and we all see the violations of sovereignty uh, and nationhood on CNN and elsewhere before our eyes. I've been very critical of Ukrainian politics in the past. I think I haven't been wrong about that. I've honed in on corruption. Uh, I don't think that Ukraine really has rule of law. 
They have a lot of post-Soviet oligarchic elements in their political system. That's all true. That matters. You don't want to take that out of the picture uh, for the sake of honesty. But the thing about Ukraine, it's not a perfect democracy, but it's a pluralistic country and it has real civil society, you know, sort of flourishing conversations, debates, it has a real cultural life. Uh, and let us not forget that the stakes here are the preservation of those things. So nationhood and sovereignty are going to be the things that are going to matter most immediately to Ukrainians, but that sort of pluralism, uh, that civil society, which is a great achievement. They've upheld that in, in eight years since 2014 uh, of, of wartime. Uh, that's a great achievement. Uh, we need to remember that. We need to remember, given what I said a moment ago about the impending military defeat of Ukraine, that that's what they stand to lose. Uh, and let's hope if we can have a long view on, on our foreign policy, that that's what they will stand at some point to, uh, to regain. But that's a very important matter for Ukraine beyond just the country's own uh, basic integrity. The stakes for Europe here are immense. And I have to say, I, you know, I'll be critical of the Biden administration uh, when, when one needs to be, uh, and they've had a lot of screw-ups in their first year, for sure, on foreign policy. Uh, but I think they've been admirable uh, in the way that they've approached the whole question of Europe over the last couple of months. They've been very engaged in uh, diplomacy. Biden has mentioned the need to defend every inch of NATO territory. He said that very you know, telegraphically uh, today. You see the commitment to Europe, you see the commitment to NATO, which is crucial uh, at this time. We don't know exactly how NATO is going to figure in this conflict, but we need an American president who can you know, sort of shore it up and, and, and speak for the alliance. And there's just been a lot of good uh, American leadership. And, you know, lest that just sound too celebratory, what, what's at stake here is the crown jewel of American foreign policy, which is not peace and security all across Europe, at every moment and in every area, but in very, very substantial parts uh, of Europe. This has been great for Europeans. Uh, it's been very good for the American economy. Uh, it's contributed in many ways to our democratic culture when we get you know, sort of uh, discussion and feedback and interchange, uh, intellectual, academic, and other kinds of exchange uh, with Europeans. When Europeans are critical of an American foreign policy venture, when a lot of Europeans are critical of an American foreign policy venture, whether it's Iraq or Vietnam, they're usually right. So they have a lot to say to us, uh, and um, you know their you know sort of peace and security uh, is something that contributes in many different ways to American life, uh, American prosperity, uh, and uh, and peace in the United States. So the stakes for Europe are very great. I can't quite figure exactly where all of this is going to work in terms of European security. I think it's going to be a new situation. We've got to rethink it, uh, but the stakes are certainly uh, very high, and it's just crucial that the United States does not allow. Uh, does not allow uh, Russia to succeed. Uh, I think over the long term, I don't think we're going to block Russia much uh, in, the, in the near term, but over the long term, uh, that's something we just have to work on. And then finally, the stakes for uh, American foreign policy. And here, maybe it's good for me to be a little bit critical of the, uh, of the Biden administration, because I don't want uh, to cheerlead too much. It's not, uh, it's not helpful. I think the U.S. needs to work on a core problem of American foreign policy that goes to Afghanistan, uh, goes to Ukraine, goes to other areas. And this is ambiguity. <laughs> you know, there's a place, there's a term, I'm sure you work on it with your students, Jeremy, of strategic ambiguity, that you don't put all your cards on the table or with Taiwan. You want China to sort of be guessing about what the U.S. is going to do, and that can be a successful policy. But we've really gotten burned uh, with these ambiguous uh, commitments. And yes. our rhetorical commitment to Ukraine was greater than our actual commitment was. I felt a certain degree of shame when I saw Zelensky go to the Munich Security Conference and come before this audience and say, I need your help, 
uh, and he was given a standing ovation, but he wasn't given that much uh, that much help. We should have been much more candid with the Ukrainians about the nature of this commitment. We should have worked on it. We really should have thought it through. And when you can't make a full commitment to your friends and partners, say it. Don't pretend that you're going to make more of a commitment than you're going to make. That's not the cause of this conflict. I'm not saying that that's a motivation for Russia to invade. That's a separate story. Uh, but we haven't put Ukraine in the perfect place in terms of uh, of those commitments. So let's think about the kinds of commitments that the U.S. makes. Uh, let's try to be candid about them. Uh, and, you know, let's sort of fit them into a good workable grand strategy that we have the resources to act upon and that reflects the best ideas and traditions uh, of American foreign policy. Uh, and let's use this crisis uh, to sharpen our minds uh, on, on, on all of these questions. A, a crisis does, for all the terrible things that it brings in its wake, it focuses the mind. So let's take that focus and let's bring it and let's recalibrate our foreign policy in a few ways uh, and, uh, and do just a bit better in the, in the, in the future. Very powerful words, and particularly your 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 last point there, Michael. It's it's a recurring theme in our podcast. Right, democracy as a strength brings in many points of view. As a weakness, it can be hard to develop that kind of focus, right, and develop that that kind of consensus. But that's the work of leadership uh, in a democracy. Zachary, as we close, uh, I've noted in the last day you've been particularly moved by the story, uh, the stories coming out of out of Ukraine. Uh, I'm just curious if, if you, for a second, as we close, would reflect on that. It connects back to your poem and what you see among other young people. Because you don't have a direct personal connection to Ukraine, but yet I've noticed how much this has affected you. Yeah, I think it's, for me personally, it's 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 very startling to see how quickly um, these things that we, we value so much in the United States, a civil society, um, vibrant cultural life, can sort of come crashing down overnight. Uh, for me, the most the most harrowing moment was watching the bombs begin to drop in Ukraine at 4 a.m. or so their time, and knowing that they were being invaded, but also knowing that many of the Ukrainians uh, at that moment were sleeping and had no idea that they were being invaded or 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 didn't know uh, what we knew. Um, I think that young people are surprisingly more aware of this than. Than many would think. I I think that there is a, a recognition of the horror of what Russia's doing, and I worry though that that too many of us are framing it in these broader uh, historical lenses. Uh, I've heard at school today many, probably dozens of people, compare it uh, to World War Two or talk of the next World War Three, uh, and I think that it's very. It's very disturbing to hear that. Um, maybe maybe it's not totally far-fetched at this point, um, but I hope that we can have more candid discussions about this issue, these issues and, and really talk about what's being lost here. Right. And I think both your poetry and your reflections now, and especially Michael's comments, really open up space for us to talk about these issues. Uh, what, what I take away, Michael, so much from your work, your scholarship in so many areas, is uh, just where we started the podcast, how important it is to penetrate beyond the words and the labels and really try to understand that what, what, what you called appropriately strategic and historical empathy and then to, to sort of work through that uh, in a way that, that's attentive to context and to the power relationships. Uh, it's a tragic moment we're in, but as you say, it, it should also focus the mind. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your, your insights with us and making time in what is a, a very difficult and busy day for you. 
Zachary and Jeremy, thank you so much. Uh, and we'll be back on this topic later. Uh, and uh, let's look forward to the day when we can speak about the bright prospects of Ukrainian democracy. May not be around the corner, but uh, uh, let's let's keep out the hope for that. The, the, the image that I keep in my mind when I think about this subject, especially at moments of, of crisis and, and anxiety, and exactly as you say, Zachary, we've lost something very important, but the image I keep in my mind are the three embassies of the Baltic Republics in, in Washington, D.C., which the United States uh, quite nobly kept as buildings because the U.S. didn't acknowledge the annexation of these three countries into the Soviet Union for some 45 years. They sort of kept them as empty buildings uh, when there was very little expectation that they would ever be used again. And all three are, of course, uh, very much in service at the present moment. So the historical wheel is always turning and spinning, and we'll wait for that moment when it turns and spins in a better direction. Uh, so well said. Uh, thank you, Michael. Thank you, Zachary. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, everyone be safe out there. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Coudini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.